The floodwaters recede in Broward County, but the pain rises. What's behind the latest political soap opera in Miami Beach? And will Latin America be an abortion refuge for Floridians? This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we look at the biblical rain that swallowed Fort Lauderdale and Broward County last week and how to prepare for the likelihood that this sort of non-hurricane storm will happen more frequently here. We'll also explore the Miami Beach political strife involving controversial Republican State House Representative Fabian Basabe. And finally, Latin American women have long come to Florida for access to abortion. Will that situation now be reversed? All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Last weekend, Fort Lauderdale resident Jamilette Gonzalez stepped into her flooded house for the first time after last week's torrential rains. After seeing the ruin, this is what she told WLRN reporter Danny Rivero. I cannot tell you how I feel right now. This is a nightmare. Now I don't have nothing. My kids, as you can see, look, that's their room. I just came here to see if at least I can save something, but as you can see, no, everything is destroyed. Fort Lauderdale and much of Broward County experienced unprecedented biblical rainfall last week. Two feet of it in a single day and then at least three more inches on Monday. It caused disastrous flooding and flood damage and shut down Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport for more than a day. Much of the water and mud has subsided, but this week it still covered many streets and still stood in many homes like Gonzalez's, especially in low-lying Fort Lauderdale neighborhoods like Edgewood. Broward County schools were also shut down for two days, and officials estimate the damage to schools there at $8 million. Meteorologists called this a 1 in 1,000 year rain event, but they also point out that global warming may well make non-hurricane season storms like this something we need to prepare for every year now. So how should South Florida communities like Fort Lauderdale or Miami or West Palm Beach confront this? Were you affected by these storms and floods? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to discuss all this is WLRN's Broward County reporter, Gerard Albert III, and Fort Lauderdale City Manager, Greg Chavaria. Gerard, Mr. Chavaria, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Mr. Chavaria, let me start with you, if I may, for an update. How many Fort Lauderdale homes, businesses, and other properties suffered the kind of flood damage Jamilet Gonzalez experienced? And does the city have a damage estimate now? Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much for inviting us uh, to the conversation. Just want to let you know that our teams have been out there with FEMA assessing the homes. Um, and we were uh, going house to house, making assessments of how much damage, um, major impact damage, which are qualified as homes that received more than 18 inches of rain inside of the home. And our estimates so far are reaching the 800 mark. Um, there are estimates that uh, that uh, are 
forecasting that we have reached more than $38 million just alone in the city. Uh, and so these uh, assessments are very important so that we can um, look for further FEMA funding uh, and individual assistance programs for rebuilding in uh, our community. Mr. Chavarria, how would you describe conditions in the hardest hit areas like Edgewood now? I mean, in, including your own offices at Fort Lauderdale City Hall, which we're hearing could require tens of millions of dollars in repairs to be usable again? Absolutely. I'll tell you that this was a very, very unique circumstance. I was out um, that evening, that Wednesday evening, with the uh, fire chief, uh, Fire Chief Golan, we were closing down streets and we were even redirecting ambulances from Broward Health to northern hospitals where there was uh, little uh, flooding or none, none at all. And I can tell you that I saw in front of Broward Health people wading up to their waist in, wa in, in water. I saw people wading uh, up to their waist in the Edgewood community um, and, and at times uh, uh, throughout the night. And so this was a very impactful event. Um, and again, 26 inches of rain over five hours uh, is something that uh, that is very, very uh, unique to South Florida. And, uh, you know, the good thing is that we had good fire rescue that helped uh, rescue more than 600 people that uh, that evening. And how would you describe conditions now in terms of improvement, if any? Well, um, we have begun with a debris pickup, um, demucking uh, many of the streets. Uh, all the streets are very dry. The groundwater table has also recessed. Uh, and so that um, that brings conditions um, back to a normal state as far as the environment. Uh, but we certainly have um, a lot to uh, to to cover and make sure that uh, our neighbors are are attended and uh, to make sure that we uh, we get back to normal. Now, some affected residents have complained the government reaction took too long. I know the city has insisted it had emergency crews out even during the rains. We know, as you mentioned, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, has been on the ground there this week. Uh, how would you argue at this point uh, about the city and federal response in terms of its timeliness in, in response to some of these complaints we've heard from residents? Well, something that I can tell you is that we're very fortunate to have partners like FWC. Um, you know, we started noticing the rain events um, as early as 6 p.m. Again, we were closing down streets and also doing public service announcements, letting people know, please stay in your home. Do not go out. Um, and we were also working with um, Broward County signalization to make sure that the lights were green so people can leave the city. And what I can tell you is that we declared an emergency that Wednesday night at 11 p.m. Um, throughout that evening into the morning hours, FWC and BSO were with airboats and rescue boats uh, helping bringing people that were trapped in their homes at the Edgewood community, bringing them to um, stay road for the Winn-Dixie there. And we, again, were able to um, rescue 600 individuals um, in, into uh, safer areas. And that uh, allowed us to also mitigate any loss of life. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that, um, you know, the rescue crews, I'm very proud of them, very proud of our fire rescue staff. Miami Fire Rescue also came through 
And uh, together, um, you know, we were able to provide a, a, uh, a rescue response. On the recovery side, Director Guthrie uh, visited us um, on Friday and was with us uh, and his team uh, has been with us and, and his team ever since at our EOC. So I will tell you that their presence and their support, um, along with other state agencies, uh, has helped us recover and also okay. helps us in the assessment process as well. Okay, understood. Uh, we have Edward from Pedbroke Pines on the line. Uh, he's lived there for 36 years and says this is the first time he's ever gotten water into his home. Edward, you're on the South Florida Roundup. Welcome. Well, thank you. So, yes, 35, 36 years, never, ever. And we've had some major rains. It turned out unbeknownst to me that my gutters were clogged and so the water instead of running off to the front street all poured into the atrium of course when it happened and i looked at the atrium it looked like a jacuzzi and there wasn't much i could do at the moment it wasn't until the second rain when it came in again that i I figured something had to be wrong because my streets weren't flooded and that's what it was right so that's that that that's that's a a, a good advice, uh, Edward, to, to to all of us. You know, uh, to, to make sure we do that kind of maintenance uh, in 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 parts of our home, like gutters, uh, in 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 emergencies like this. WLRN's Gerard Albert III has been on the ground for us in Broward through all of this. Gerard, what have flooded residents been telling you about what they're going through? Well, this week has been all about uh, salvaging, salvaging what uh, they can of furniture, of drywall, of, um, you know, personal belongings like books and photos, things like that. Um, Spoken to some people around Dillard High School who um, their rooms are cleared, you know, no more dressers, no more mattresses, no more shelves. You know, they're going to have to replace about two feet of drywall. And then same in the Edgewood community. When And when you drive around there this week, it looks like uh, there's a yard sale going on with everybody. All of their belongings are in the front of their homes, um, lining the streets. I mean, you know, everything, cabinets, dressers, shelving, beds. Um, you know, I walked through one woman's house who had about two, three feet of water in her home, and, and it was completely empty. Um, everything was gone. Everything was out, and, and nothing was salvageable. All right. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the flood disaster in Broward County. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Gerard Albert III, you were in the field also with FEMA agents this week. How many Broward County properties have they so far assessed for major damage, and what kind of federal assistance does it look like folks can expect? Right. FEMA was out um, starting this week, um, but the Fort Lauderdale Fire Department was also out doing damage assessments and logging them into a uh, city kind of GIS and an interactive map. And so far, just over 1,100 properties have been assessed and almost 800 received what's called major damage, mm-hmm. which is uh, more than 18 inches of water um, in the house, um, standing for a long time, going over electrical outlets, things like that. Um, you know. FEMA 
takes all this reporting, uh, both qualitative and um, quantitative, you know, how much it has affected the person and also how much rain and how badly, uh, how, how bad the, of shape the house is in. Is, is FEMA's presence having a positive psychological effect? Let's say, I mean, just, just going back to what you were just describing in terms of what people have suffered there, does that have, uh, that, that FEMA presence have any sort of positive psychological effect on them being able to, to look forward, do you think? Totally. Um, I was, when I shadowed the team, they spoke to one woman and, and asked her the kind of checklist of questions. How high was the water? Do you have a water line we can take a picture of? What appliances are working? Did you lose power? That sort of thing. And then, you know, she asked them, well, you know, what can we expect? And they said, oh, we're going to send this data to the state and they'll make a decision off whether they ask FEMA for money or not. Uh, and the woman just, you know, broke down a little bit and was just like, you know, thank you guys. Thank you, you know, Right. for being here. Thank you for listening. Um, you know, whether or not the aid comes is yet to be seen, but um, psychologically in that moment, you know, residents were thankful that someone was checking in on them. Right. So at least they have that. And it, it, what's the best way for property owners to reach out to FEMA if they want to? Is, any advice on that front? Um, I, I know that the city had a number that they were asking residents to call, but I think the city and uh, okay. Greg can check with or fact check me there, but I think the city um, is done with those assessments for now. Okay, and Mr. Chavarria, then uh, the, the, the city can provide that information to residents? So so we gladly would assist and facilitate, um, you know, sending FEMA to specific addresses. Uh, any resident can call our 24-7 customer service line at 954-828-8000, 954-828-8000. Okay. And I appreciate that um, you all highlighted the app that app helps us streamline um, the data collection, gathering, and processing okay. for the state. Great, thank for you, very, FEMA. thank you very much for that, Gerard. You've also been looking at the significant damage done to Broward schools. Br just briefly, what can you tell us about that? Right, um, you know, Stranahan High School is one of the schools that I visited yesterday, and it's you know it, it got more than two feet of rain inside. So the weight room, the the wrestling room, um, those two rooms are are right now completely stripped uh, the flooring is gone the school district has already replaced drywall in there um but they're totally unusable right now and then oops i think we may have lost gerard i'm sorry can you hear me now yes wait, yeah we can now mm -hmm. sorry about that the the auditorium in stranahan high school is completely gutted um, it saw mm -hmm. more than two feet of flooding all the chairs are gone. The water almost reached the stage. The flooring is gone. That's going to take months and thousands of dollars um, to repair. Right. Mr. Chavarria, I, I want to change direction here a little bit and look ahead. On the one hand, these were unprecedented rains, but we noted at the outset, climate change experts are warning that we can likely expect hurricane-style rains now, even during the non-hurricane season. So what do Fort Lauderdale and Broward need to do to make the community more prepared for and more resilient to radical rainstorms like these? All right. So one of the things that we're doing is reevaluating our $200 million stormwater uh, mitigation plan and looking at how we can accelerate that further so that we can have some of these projects delivered sooner rather than later. 
the other thing too is it's important that everyone uh, is aware of you know disaster management and also have a disaster plan for themselves. It's important for people to uh, take advantage of home insurance um, and flood insurance and and these are the kind of things that will help us you know be resilient through unprecedented uh, unprecedented storm. Um, so we certainly can help um, individuals. Uh, and guide them as to what kind of um, flood mitigation programs are out there. But we encourage everyone to to also do their part and plan ahead. Are you surprised at how few people seem to be equipped with flood insurance? Not not just in Fort Lauderdale, but all over Broward, if not Florida, um, as as we face these kinds of storms now. I, I think I think um, you know it's a reality. People are trying to do their best, and so sometimes. Um, you know, the, the risk is not so visible, but I think uh, with the recent storms, I think many are going to uh, take heed and, and, and of the awareness and also yeah. uh, take advantage of, of flood insurance as well. Doesn't the development mindset need to change as well? I mean, a common complaint we hear is that Fort Lauderdale and Broward have for too long indulged too much development while requiring too little infrastructure investment, especially drainage infrastructure. And I know that's hardly just a Broward and Fort Lauderdale flaw, but is that changing? Well, I, what I can tell you is that any development that comes through, um, they are assessed an impact fee and they also they also support improving the infrastructure surrounding the new development. We also have new development that, uh, that the requirements are a lot stricter than the existing uh, homes or, or facilities that, that are out there. Um, and the the new requirements uh, require that they contain uh, their stormwater within the property. In fact, you will see that some of the new buildings uh, were resilient uh, throughout the storm because of the, uh, the strict uh, stormwater requirements that, that, uh, that each developer has to provide. Um, so, it's it's important that you know as government agencies we are very uh, uh, compliant uh, with state and EPA and also federal guidelines and uh, we're making sure that all that takes place for every uh, development that uh, we review. And finally, Gerard, what are residents themselves saying to you about this particular subject? Well, they're frustrated for sure, um, especially in the Edgewood neighborhood. Uh, they, they have felt a little bit forgotten about, um, and that goes from the city level to the county to the state. Um, you know, and that, that frustration is, is obvious, and it's obvious why they're feeling it as they're gutting their homes. But I think as the dust settles, um, you know, I've already heard a couple people have told me, you know, this is the second time this has happened and I just can't lose my car and all my possessions again. Like I'm moving, I'm going more West. I'm going more Northwest in the County. I'm going to an apartment building that's on the second floor. I can't do with deal with this again. Right, well, understandable. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Greg Chavaria is Fort Lauderdale's city manager. Gentlemen, thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, a controversial state lawmaker is at the center of a political storm in Miami Beach.
I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last Friday, demonstrators with the LGBTQ plus rights nonprofit Equality Florida protested outside the Miami Beach office of Republican State Representative Fabian Basabe. Their chief complaint against the freshman lawmaker was that during his 2022 election campaign, he pledged to champion the gay and transgender community. But they insist Basabi's votes during the current legislative session have betrayed their trust. Basabi supported broadening what critics call the Don't Say Gay law that prohibits public school instruction on gender and sexual orientation. He also backed a protection of children measure dubbed the anti-drag show bill that revokes permits from businesses that allow children to attend drag performances. Basabi told those protesters outside his office that he stands by his votes. Meanwhile, Basabe, who up to now had been a reality TV star, is now under investigation in the Florida House for allegedly slapping a young aide in the face, a charge he denies. But here's another controversial question. Because the new 106th House District Basabi represents is a largely Democratic swath of Miami Beach, how did Democrats lose this seat to a novice Republican candidate in the first place? What are your thoughts on this Miami Beach muddle? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is WLRN reporter and Miami Beach resident, Veronica Saragovia. Veronica, thanks for coming in. Of course, thanks for having me on. Veronica, you live in Miami Beach in the 106th District, and you watched the protest. Why are so many constituents there suddenly so upset with Representative Basabe? Well, Tim, the 106th district has long, it's a redrawn district, but it's long, this area is coastal Miami-Dade County, Miami Beach, uh, Fisher Island, North Bay Village, Surfside, Sunny Isles, Aventura, all places that have historically for a long time voted Democrat. And so he had presented himself as an ally of the LGBTQ community. When you think of Miami Beach, I mean, this is a city historically very proud of its LGBTQ residents. It has a 15th annual Pride Festival and Parade that happened last weekend. And this particular district has a large LGBTQ community. Absolutely. And services, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. testing and and health uh, community for for LGBTQ people. So um, absolutely the kind of place that would be very upset by the actions he's taken. Well, can you tell us a little bit about who this controversial figure Fabian Basabe is? I, I mean, this week, Miami Herald columnist Fabiola Santiago compared him to George Santos, the Republican freshman congressman from New York who's famous for his uh, dishonesty. <laughs> are, are, right. fo- are folks in his district, in Basabe's district, drawing the same parallel? Yes, they are, because there's a lot about him that seems to be fabricated. Um, you know, he'll... For, well, and there people know him um, for having been a um, figure on a show called Filthy Rich. It was a reality right. show that, as uh-huh. you mentioned, um, he hasn't really been known to keep a job very long. He lives off of his family's wealth, and um, he. But he, he's married. He has a son, and actually 
previously he tried to run for Miami Beach Commission and he was disqualified because he was not living in Miami Beach. He was living in Bay Harbor. So these are the kinds of things where he's uh -huh. not honest about himself. Right. Now, Basabi ran as a moderate Republican, as you pointed out. He described himself as, quote, fed up with partisanship and politics as usual. But his campaign seemed to emphasize issues like Miami Beach infrastructure improvement, especially climate change mitigation. So did he really campaign on a pledge to protect LGBTQ rights in Florida? Yes, he did, Tim. He has painted himself as an ally, a champion. I mean, for Equality Florida to be so upset and and put together the, this protest outside of his office and say, how could you lie to us and, and vote in favor of bills that cause so much harm? Um, he mentioned that he's uh, in favor of same-sex marriage, which isn't an issue on the table, uh, but, it, you know, he's always, and he has, if you look on his website, there's photos of him campaigning in a past Pride event um, with the gay flag behind him, and it's it's always how he's painted himself. And so, um, now they're, you know, people are really upset by this betrayal, as they call it. And what are they saying, then, as to, I mean, you know, you, you spoke with Basabi the day of the protest against him. Why did he say that he voted, essentially, with the right wing of the Republican Party on these LGBTQ related bills. He actually said to me and a group of reporters that if he voted no, he would be voting against the majority party of which he's part. So he's now kind of pulled a switch and, and presenting himself as a strong Republican person, candidate, or uh, sorry, a member of the House of Representatives. Yeah. And um, he said that, for instance, um, teachers can't be me uh, remembering children's genders. They have too much to do. There's too many children in a class size. He talked about wanting to protect uh, drug performers by keeping the performances open to, to he said what right. he, his, big, his big argument on that that uh, issue was that you know by, by voting against this bill he was actually he said protecting drag shows by not uh, letting themselves taint themselves with this, uh, this this image of of performing lewd acts in front of children, that sort of thing. This yeah. is what he says to try to defend himself. And uh -huh. honestly, it's very difficult to to understand a lot of what he says. I mean, it would be it's like trying to understand George mm -hmm. Santos's decisions. Right. I find that he he comes out with answers that might fit the moment um so it's hard to really say what he's thinking but um he for instance he said he's protect he he he's protecting drag performers um so that the unknown because unknown performers are doing lewd acts that are getting um you know the yeah. performers in trouble but another big part of his 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 uh uh argument is that he claims he was exercising the kind of moderate republican common sense that he says he campaigned on on these bills especially when it comes to not exposing children to adult subjects is he being honest in that regard he's he he presented himself in his campaign as a quote moderate republican and now he's saying this is what a re moderate republican would do uh well how do they reacting to that in the people are upset because in the 106 because this kind of bill could potentially cause um uh, sorry pride parades to end because if this is if it's considered an adult performance because it's kind of left up to interpretation something where people get to feel proud and and it's something that's 15 years old in Miami Beach it's a tradition and they would not no longer be able to do it perhaps because this might come up with some fines mm -hmm. um or or the palace on Ocean Drive along 
time institution there people are really upset that he's for him he said he told us that he has no financial gain in being a member of the house of representatives and no like huge political aspirations so it's uh, so the like the votes that he's taking could harm a lot of people and so people don't understand then what why are you in this it's a long-term consequences that yes. they say he's really not paying attention Absolutely. to, right? I mean, Basabi this week also supported a bill that mandates exclusive use of public restrooms by one's gender at birth, which of course critics are calling another attack on the transgender community. Does that follow with his previous votes? Now it does. Because, yeah. I mean, anybody who's trying to champion or support any member of the LGBTQ community would see that that stigmatizes or marginalizes transgender youth. So it fits with the way he's been voting, but the opponents are really upset by that vote, which hadn't come up in the protest because he hadn't yet voted on that one, so we weren't able to ask him mm -hmm. why he voted that way, but now it does fall along with his other decisions. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the controversy involving Miami Beach State Representative Fabian Basabe. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. So, Veronica, it's not just Basavi's votes on the LGBTQ issues that have him in hot water in his district. It's also women's rights issues, um, you know, which he also campaigned uh, to defend, as far as we know. Last week, he did not cast a vote on the bill that now prohibits abortion in Florida after six weeks of pregnancy. That makes Florida one of the most restrictive abortion states in the country. Why would he not vote on a measure that significant? Oh, Tim, and I'll clarify for listeners that that legislation, uh, that law hasn't gone into effect because the 15-week ban is being challenged by the at the Florida Supreme Court. Sure. Mm -hmm. But he said um, that the Republicans were the only ones who were coming to the table to try to come to a consensus, which is just factually not true. I watched the eight hours of debate on the in the Florida House, and and there were about fifty eight amendments that were brought up, sensible amendments like protecting a, a woman who had been a victim of domestic violence, um, giving her maybe an exception and, and access to an abortion after six weeks. All of these were voted down. He voted all of the amendments down, and then didn't vote on the on that bill. And he said that he didn't vote because it wasn't a twelve week ban that was what he was in favor of. And he said that he had worked with Planned Parenthood on, on this. I have reached out to Planned Parenthood to fact check that, haven't heard back, but there is that that organization defends reproductive rights and right. would not well, be. In he has said in interviews that when he sat down with Planned Parenthood, he was, uh, quote, you know, repelled by their extremist uh, position on this. He was claiming that they were insisting on no uh, no limits at all. Is that, is that was he this essentially being... This is what he's being, saying, yeah. and, uh -huh. and it's just like time and time again, Baisabi's way of, of trying to kind of confuse a person when he's talking and saying something like that, that actually makes no sense. I mean, mm -hmm. the, um, the Democrats are trying to present uh, amendments that would maybe bring some, make, uh, bring uh, you out of extremism. And that's what he said. He's against extremism, but he really sided with the extremists. Yeah, that, confusing, confusing to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. But let's look now at the larger issue here of how a Republican like Basabe, a guy who, as we've mentioned, who'd only been a reality TV star up to now, 
got elected to the legislature in a Democratic Miami Beach district like this. He won by only 242 votes, but still, this is remarkable even for Florida's dysfunctional Democratic Party. <laughs> what did Basabe do right and what did the Democrats do so wrong it's in this instance? Great question. A few things. I mean, we didn't expect the Republican Party to do as well in this last election as it did. I think that had something to do with it. Miami-Dade County went for the Republican Party that had in major a major election that it hadn't done so in, in mm -hmm. 20 years. Uh, but also, this is perhaps when I think about the people who live in, these, in this district, it's not the kind of Democrat who's maybe like a past Bernie Sanders voter. Right. They're uh -huh. a little more centrist. A lot of people in South Florida, as you know, are immigrants from Latin America, mm -hmm. maybe um, people who are, who are Jewish and support Israel. And a lot of times our politics bring them to the center. And so um, That's a I, great point. I'm yeah. thinking that might mm -hmm. have helped. And also mm -hmm. I'll add that he's he has a lot of friends in politics, including commissioners in Miami Beach, like Kristen Rosen Gonzalez, who um, is now under attack for having uh, texted with him saying that she's going to vote for him, but that she knows that that would be kind of toxic for her. And Alex uh, Fernandez, who is a commissioner and a former commissioner, Michael Gongra, they're all photographed in former Mayor Maddie Bauer. These are all people who are Democrats uh, who what was voted the, for what him. Was the Democratic candidate then uh, perceived as being a little too far to the left for you know, for this constituency? He was in, jo uh, Jordan Leonard was, he's a longtime Bay Harbor Islands resident. He was endorsed by the former representative Joe Geller, who was termed out, and that's why he didn't run again. And he's maybe a little more quiet. I'd seen him in, once in an ab uh, abortion mm -hmm. rights rally, and you almost didn't even know there was a, a somebody running for office in that space, because he's somebody who had just been um he, he considers himself like a wonk and he doesn't he would never be in a parade on a com red convertible uh blowing out kisses to the public that's just on his style and maybe that's but F fabian basabe has a personality that's very personable and charming and maybe it worked to his benefit but you know he insists that he's still a friend of the lgbt community and last weekend he took part in the miami beach pride parade how did the crowd there react to that? Oh, they did not react well. There was a lot of <laughs> booing. There were fingers. There was thumbs down. Um, people had signs um, against him. People with signs saying that he should resign. A similar scene to the protests at, outside of his office in North Bay right. Village. And finally, just quickly, Veronica, where do things stand with the legislature's investigation into Basabi's conduct and the alleged public slap he gave his aide? You know, that whole issue is a little nebulous because when we asked him about that, he said that he didn't remember it, that he needed to see the video. He's claimed that the, that this has been doctored, that people are lying. So I don't know what they've been able to investigate on the legislative side, but from his perspective, he's not wanting to admit yeah. to anything. WLN reporter Veronica Saragovia, thanks as always for your sharp Miami Beach <laughs> insights, and I'm glad you can stick around for our next discussion. Still to come. Florida was once an abortion rights refuge for Latin America. Is that now the other way around? I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. 
As of this month, Florida now prohibits abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. That's one of the country's most restrictive abortion laws. And critics say it effectively outlaws all abortions since most women don't even know they're pregnant before six weeks. The new law does allow some exceptions. It permits abortion up to 15 weeks of pregnancy in cases such as rape and incest. Still, until just last year, abortion was legal in this state up to 24 weeks of pregnancy. In fact, abortion in Florida now looks more like abortion in Latin America, or what abortion used to look like in Latin America. Some of the region's largest countries, including Argentina, Colombia, and Mexico, have recently legalized abortion and now allow it up to 14 weeks of pregnancy. So now, after Latin Americans for decades came to Florida for access to abortion, will Floridians start seeking it in Latin America? You can call us with your questions or thoughts about this potential turnabout at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. WLRN health reporter reporter Veronica Saragovia is still with me here in the studio. Also with us is Daniela Martins. She's based here in Miami as the Strategy and Communications Director for the nonprofit Women's Equality Center, which promotes abortion rights. Today she joins us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Veronica, Daniela, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Daniela, briefly put into perspective for us just how dramatically things have changed in just the past few years on the abortion rights front in Latin America? Uh, well, in the last uh, two and a half years, three major countries in the region decriminalized abortion, Argentina, Mexico, and Colombia. Being extremely Catholic countries as well, and the geopolitical importance that they have in the region, these were very impactful wins, and they have had what we've been calling this domino effect of the green wave in other countries in the region. Right, so la, marea, la marea verde, right? Correct. So we're seeing advances in reproductive rights of all kinds in many uh, different countries. The most recent of them are Honduras and Peru, who recently expanded access uh, to emergency contraception in their country. Now, we should point out, however, that Latin America is still home to some of the most restrictive anti-abortion rights laws in the world. Five countries there, if I'm not mistaken, still prohibit abortion under any circumstance, including rape and incest. But which Latin American countries do you see, Daniela, as next in line to legalize abortion? Chile, for example? Um, so Chile is undergoing a current constitutional process uh, that could provide some lines as to uh, where they're moving. Another country to watch is also Brazil with the new election of Lula. It could be a country that would be uh, shifting to more progressive policies as well. Um, and it's definitely been looking like the region overall is moving forward, even though these countries, one of these countries is actually Honduras, the ones that have total abortion bans, even in these countries, we're seeing some movement, mm -hmm. uh, such as the depenalization of emergency contraception. Now, so we could see abortion exceptions in the future. Now, Daniela, when abortion rights advocates in Latin America look at the U.S., and particularly Florida, how do they react to the reality that abortion rights are receding here? 
Um, with tremendous pain and with tremendous solidarity. Uh, this is a fight that in Latin America we know all too well because we've seen this movie before. We know how it ends. Um, and so uh, the showcase of solidarity from Latin America to the U.S. has been extremely potent. One of these reminders is from Mexico who has opened their doors to uh, women from the United States that may have to find abortion care in other places, such as start con considering travel to Mexico for it. And Veronica, let me put that question to you in reverse. When women here in Florida now look at Latin America, how do they respond? Are, are, are they starting to see Latin America now as a refuge where they can travel to have an abortion after the six-week limit that just became law here? Absolutely, because, for instance, Colombia, which is a three-hour flight if you're going to Bogota, for instance, um, it, abortion is legal up to 24 weeks, which is the point of viability that it was the case here before Roe v. Wade was overturned. Right. So um, people might consider that it's cheaper to have a stay in a country like Colombia, which is not like cheap, cheap, but it's certainly more affordable than going to any city in the U.S. with a very expensive hotel stay. Right, a lot cheaper days. flight than going to L.A. Absolutely, you know, exactly. Yeah. And, and thank you for pointing out that in Colombia, the, the limit is 24 weeks now. I, I, I misspoke in my intro when, when I, uh, it, it's four, up to 14 weeks in Argentina right. and Mexico, correct, Daniela? Uh, Mexico does not have a... Oh, that's right. It's up to each state, yes. Limit. Correct. Yeah, it's up yeah. to each state. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the reversal of abortion situations in Florida and Latin America. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Daniela Martins of the Women's Equality Center is with us from Brazil. Daniela... Even if women in Florida and other U.S. states may consider Latin America an abortion refuge now, does that necessarily mean that Latin America is ready for or even wants an influx of Americans coming south to access the procedure? I would say that that seems to be the case. Uh, the city of Mexico um, actually put out a statement saying that they were getting their clinics ready and they were doing the necessary uh steps in order to be able to open their doors to American people seeking abortion care. So it would look like that is the case. However, it is also important to point out that while we can start seeing this, it'll still be very much a privilege. Those who can afford traveling out of state right. or out of the country will be able to access safe and legal abortion care. But the front of this bill like all of these uh, bans, is going to be suffered by the most economically vulnerable people who can't travel for so many reasons, right? Because yes. they can't afford it, they don't have the necessary documentation, or, you know, for childcare needs, or they could lose their job. So this continues to be an incredibly privileged position. And it mm -hmm. is a, you know, a silver lining, a saving grace that these cases can be tended to, uh, but it's by no means, you know, uh, what we would hope. We would hope for the expansion and maintenance of these rights in the U.S. Right. This is, that's a very good point. This is obviously uh, a privilege for the affluent. I mean, and, and it was the same way when, when the situation was in reverse. In El Salvador, for example, uh, you know, you might have seen, um, you might, you might have, you might have seen, um, 
you know, uh, upper middle class women, you know, coming to Miami to get abortions, right. uh, but 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 not maids. And that's going to be the same case with with Floridians. And, and, and in my own reporting, I, I recall abortion rights advocates in Colombia, for example, were telling me they were considering ways to accommodate U.S. abortion seekers. Is, is, is that another country that's getting ready for this? Yes, absolutely it is. Because of the proximity Mexico and Colombia have, uh, Colombia with Florida, it makes more sense. Now, Argentina, out of those three countries, is the one that has where abortion has been legal for the longest. Mm-hmm. So while it might not be as easy of a destination right. because of where it is in the distance, it is also an alternative where there is an entire infrastructure uh, ready to provide incredibly safe legal services mm-hmm. of this very important health care. Now, the, the Latin American abortion rights movement is known, as you mentioned before, Daniela, for the so-called Marea Verde, or Green Wave, and it's been very effective at changing hearts and minds on the issue there. Was this just good timing? I mean, meaning it emerged at a moment when the most intense opponent to abortion rights in the region, the Roman Catholic Church, had lost a lot of moral authority because of its sexual abuse scandals, or was it smart strategy? What has the Latin American abortion rights movement been doing right that perhaps the U.S. movement could learn from now? Daniela, let me start with you on that. I think there's a few things that are incredibly important. The diversity of the Maria Verde of the Green Wave is one of them. Uh, This is no longer a coalition of certain organizations. It is a movement. And it required opening itself up to be taken over by a multiplicity of messengers and messages in order for it to reach the efficacy that it did. So the movement actually, which starts in Argentina, it failed to legalize abortion in 2018. And in 2020, it is successful. And in 2018, it looked like this was never gonna happen, that the fight was impossible, but they learned from that failure to become more strategic and more open in the multiplicity of messages to create a more diverse coalition. And the other piece that I think is incredibly important is to celebrate and maintain small wins. So progress will sometimes be incremental. Maintaining and protecting what is already here in the U.S. is also a way to win in this moment of incredible pushback. And I think that's something that the Green Wave has been very intelligent in. when we're able to um, decriminalize emergency contraception in a place like Honduras, we don't we don't think, oh, it's a failure because we don't have legal abortion. We think this is a win, even if it's a smaller incremental win, because we're securing something new. We're taking smaller right. steps towards something bigger. Daniela, something else that has that that. Uh people have mentioned to me when I talk to people in Latin America about this, you you talk about the multiplicity of messages. One critique I've often heard from Latin American abortion rights advocates is that they felt that in the U.S. there was far too much emphasis on the, quote, right to a woman's privacy 
aspect of this, but not enough emphasis on other factors such as uh, social justice. The fact that, you know, as we were talking about before, a maid can't get access to abortion as easily as an affluent, uh, you know, housewife uh, in Brickle. Um, that there was not enough emphasis in the U.S. On, on, on that aspect that could also work at changing hearts and minds on the issues. Is that a valid critique? Um, I think it is. The specific um, social justice aspect that you speak of, for example, was instrumental in uh, moving the undecided judges in the Colombian case that decriminalized right. abortion. Mm-hmm. But the public health message, the message of, of like this, this is a public health crisis was instrumental in moving certain votes in the Argentinian Senate that right. guaranteed mm-hmm. uh, the victory. So mm-hmm. when I speak of a multiplicity of messages and messengers, that's exactly what we're trying um, mm-hmm. to pass off as one of us, our most important lessons through this right. process, and ver- which is... Uh, and, and Veronica, in the very short time we have left, what do you think Latin America is doing right that the U.S. abortion rights movement could learn from? It's that social media uh, access or that the use of social media to show those images of, of equality. Um, also, the protest movement, I think, is so strong in these big plazas in, of capital cities in Latin America, like Buenos Aires or Bogota, that, are, that here, let's say in Florida, Tallahassee is pretty far for people who live in Miami-Dade County and to go protest is a little more challenging. Challenging. So I think that uh, public message is sometimes better done out in those countries. Great points. Veronica Zadagovia is WLRN's health reporter. Daniela Martins is with the Women's Equality Center. She joined us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Many thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Finally on the roundup, a month of zip odes and celebrating the place you call home. Throughout April, O Miami and WLRN have been inviting you to write a zip ode, a five-line poem inspired by your zip code. And every week in April, we've been choosing our favorite ten. Today, you'll hear three appropriately bilingual offerings, starting with this one. My name is Jose Luis Garcia. I live in Hialeah. My zip code is 33012. And my poem is in dedication to my grandmother, Batas de Casa, en la tendedera, nada, contigo, un paraíso. The rules are simple. Each number of your zip code determines the number of words in that line, like this. My name is Aisha Perez Prado. I live in unincorporated Miami-Dade County, and my zip code is 33182. They say that, se dice que, Miami is donde Spanish and English fell in love and multiplicaron. Here's another from Gretel Delgado, zip code 33127. Here we play. Here we say, Acere, what's up? Bonjour, que hola, kumanuje, Miami. You can hear these poems and more at our Zip Odes finale on April 26th. For details, visit WLRN.org slash Zip That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. This episode was produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, 
Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.